Good evening. It's so good to see everybody this wonderful Christmas Eve. We had a record crowd in here, first service, standing room only, and I thought, man, I don't know if anybody is coming to that. I think every single person, except there were some of you I, were looking, I was looking for. And so I talked to somebody, and I said, man, he, he said the same thing. He said, I think everybody is here. I said, why do you think that is? And he said, the early bird gets the worm. I said, I don't think so. I'm saving the best for last, baby. 530 is where it's going to be. So I'm so glad that you guys are here with me at the 530 service tonight. If I haven't had a, ch- a chance to meet you yet. My name is Nate. I'm the lead pastor here at Vintage Church in Liberty Hill. And this is both my favorite day of the week and maybe my favorite day of the year. Sunday is always the best day of the week, but when Sunday is a Christmas Eve service, my favorite service of the whole year, I just get really excited. In fact, it's so, it's so weird. I was so excited about this service that I got sad three days ago thinking about how fast it would be here and be over. You know, like, man, it's going to, all right, just, all right, okay, hold on. Enjoy the moment. Let's get there. It's going to be great. Uh, we have been in a, an Advent series where we've been looking backwards so that we could look forwards, and we're going to do some more of that tonight. But before I jump into the message, I do just want to let you know, next Sunday on New Year's Eve, we will be here at our normal times uh, in the morning at 9.30 and 11, and we're going to be diving into a brand new series called The Year of the Bible. And it's not going to be a series that lasts the whole year, uh, But what we want to do is to help you start the year on the foundation of God's word. And in our first week, we're going to deal with some of the skepticism about the authority of Scripture and some of the issues that people have with, can you trust it? Is it reliable? And so if you are a bit skeptical about whether or not God's word is good and true, you should definitely come back. And if you know someone who is, that would be a great message to bring them to hear. But we're going to kick off the new year on New Year's Eve and spend those first four weeks really kind of establishing the foundation of God's word for our life at at the start of the year so that we can build on from there. Um, but tonight, I'm, re- I'm very excited to get into our Christmas message. You know, today and tonight, Chris- Christians all around the world pause to remember the birth of Jesus. And we are joining in with them by doing that. And like I said, we've been spending the last three weeks looking backward to look forward. And tonight, I want to look back pretty specifically to a, a moment about 700 years before Jesus was born. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, he, he prophesied about the coming of the Messiah. And he had some things to say about who he would be, what he would be like. And we've written songs about this and we sing about this. But tonight I want to spend a few minutes and talk about this. We're going to jump in to Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. It says this, For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. I'm going to pause there and just point something out to you. It's interesting the way the text reads, For a child is born to us. Some versions say, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. I'm going to appeal to you the reason for that distinction is that there was a child being born of of flesh and blood. But the son was given. He wasn't created in that moment. He always was. John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Isaiah is even seeing Prophetically, of course, God is revealing this to him, that there is going to be a child born, and in that child will be the given son. Let's keep reading and see what it says about him. It says this, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. 
the passionate commitment of the Lord's heavenly armies will make all of this happen. Now what's interesting is, of course, this is prophecy. So at the time that this is being spoken, it's speaking about something that hasn't happened yet. And that's what God does often throughout Scripture and still does that today. He speaks to people about the things that are still to come. And that's sometimes hard for us to get our minds around because we live 2,000 years on the other side of the birth of the Messiah. And now... You can't go to H-E-B without hearing a song that's telling you about that moment. But Isaiah, he's seeing it as if he has an eagle eye into the future 700 years before and tells us about who this person would be. He did not say that his name would be Jesus. That would come later. But how many know one name isn't sufficient for the King of Kings? There's a lot of things that he has called, and Isaiah has given us four that I want to explore a bit tonight. So we're going to jump in and look at the four prophetic names of Jesus according to Isaiah's prophecy. Number one is this. He's called the wonderful counselor the wonderful counselor <clears throat> the apostle paul would pick up on this theme when he's writing his his letter of colossians to the church at colossia and he says this in chapter 2 verse 2 i want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love and i want them to have complete confidence that they understand god's mysterious plan how I many know sometimes god's plans are mysterious but look what he says which is christ himself christ is the plan. More on that in a moment. But he says this, in him, speaking of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, in him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All treasures of wisdom and knowledge. How many of you could use a little wisdom in your life? I hope both hands go up. Yes, Lord, give me some more wisdom. I need some more wisdom. The guys in the back somehow found four hands for one person. I don't know how that just happened. That was impressive. Uh, Lord, send him extra wisdom. James says, ask for it and he'll give it to you. So give it to it. Let, let it be. Let it be. Jesus' name. But here's the thing. We all need some knowledge. We need some wisdom. The Bible says that he is the wonderful counselor. That's something else that we all need. That means he's a counselor, a therapist. Come on, somebody. I've been to a therapist. My wife told me at first service, you might need to go again after what you said during first service. No, I'm just kidding. But we all need a counselor. Some of us need it a little more than others, but we all need it. The Bible teaches us that the wonderful counselor, the best counselor of all is Jesus. And so while I'm all for therapy and getting some mental health help and that sort of thing, let me tell you something that better be coming from people who understand that Jesus is the best counselor there is and that their counsel comes from his counsel. Amen. That's the kind of counsel we need is that which is a part of the person of Jesus. Now, the second thing Isaiah tells us about the Messiah is this, that he is in fact, number two, you can write this down, mighty God. He is a mighty God. The Bible teaches in the Old Testament and the New Testament that God is a great God, greater than all other gods, greater than all other, all other idols, all other powers. And look at Deuteronomy chapter 10 and 17. It says, for the Lord your God is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. He is the great God, the mighty and awesome God, which shows no partiality and, by the way, cannot be bribed. Aren't you glad for that? No partiality cannot be bribed. Psalm 95.3 says, For the Lord is a great God, great king above all gods. And then as if speaking directly into a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, we have Paul in his letter to the church at Philippi saying this in Philippians 2.9, Therefore God elevated him, speaking of Jesus, to the highest place of honor and gave him the name above all other names. 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is who Jesus is. 700 years after Isaiah prophesied, he would come in the form of a baby in a manger. But this is who he is, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. In fact, the Bible tells us he's a conquering Jewish king. When he comes back, he will be coming back with power. We'll speak to that in just a moment. But it speaks to the eternal nature. It says this is something he always has been and always will be. Number three, Isaiah tells us that he is the everlasting father, the everlasting father. Now, if you are Trinitarian like I am, like we are, that might break your brain just a little bit. Hold on a second. Time out, Pastor Nate. I thought Jesus was the son. He is. The son was given. But he also exhibits these, these, uh, these examples of what a great Father would be an everlasting father. So I'm not going to do a Trinitarian message tonight and talk about the ontological differences versus the economic differences of the the Trinity and the Godhead. But what I'm going to tell you is that though Jesus in the Trinity is the son, he exhibits the form of a perfect, a perfect everlasting father. Let me show you how this works. I'm going to spend a few more minutes on this one because I think it's super powerful for us to see the way that Jesus is an everlasting father. Number one, it is his eternal nature, right? Everlasting. That means he embodies eternity. He embodies always was and always will be. I quoted it a minute ago, but we'll put it on the screen. John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning, the word already existed. Now that should mess with your timetable just a little bit. In the beginning, I thought that's where things started. I know, me too. Except before the beginning, he was already there. He was already there. He was existing as the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right here, this underscores the preexistent, eternal nature of who the person of Jesus was, is, and evermore will be. The second way that he shows us what a good father looks like is this, that number two, he's a protector. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. He is a protector. Jesus shows this. Uh, and how he lives, and how he interacts with what he calls his sheep, which should be offensive to you and me if we actually understood sheep, but that's who we are sometimes. We just need to be taken care of. But the Bible says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. And this here reflects the protective nature of a good father who would do anything, including sacrifice his own life to protect his little ones. Jesus did this in this way. He shows us what a good, eternal father is like. Number three, he's a provider. He's a provider. Jesus provides for the needs of his children, just like any good father provides for the needs of their children. Let's look at John 3, excuse me, 6, 35. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Let me just pause here for a second. I don't know about you, but I am so grateful that he did not say, I am the squash of life. I am the vegetables of life. I don't know if that would be a compelling message. I mean, when I get to heaven and finally wait in a long line, it would probably last a billion years before I actually get to talk to Jesus. I don't know. Maybe it happens immediately. I'm not sure how that's going to work. But when I get, I'm going to say, how come you didn't say, I am the brisket of life. And whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. I'm not saying you can improve on the word, but that might have been an improvement, at least for Texans in 2023. Come on, somebody. Anyway, he's not the vegetables. He's the bread. So whoever comes to me will never say never. 
Never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never, say it again, never. Be thirsty. Jesus is speaking of his ability to provide for our deepest spiritual needs. The reason that so many people get themselves in trouble is because there's something inside of them they know needs to be satisfied, so they look to satisfy it through relationships, through hobbies. It goes into addictions. You know how those those are created? Because someone is doing something to try to satisfy that hole inside of them, and they think, man, maybe it feels like it kind of worked, but then it didn't. Maybe I just need a little more. So they do it again and again and again, and unfortunately, this is the way sin is. It'll take you farther than you ever wanted to go and make you pay more than you ever thought you could pay because the more you give into it, the less it satisfies. It's literally the opposite of Jesus. But he says, whoever comes after me will never hunger and will never thirst again because he alone can satisfy that thing in you that no person, no image, no thing that you consume, nothing ever could. He alone can do it. Paul reinforces this idea in Philippians 4.19. says this, at this, in this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. I just want you to know I've done the word studies. In every language, all means all. All means all. He stands ready to provide for all of your needs. Now, notice it doesn't say all your wants. This is the problem. Some people think Jesus needs to give you all you want. That's not what it says. Oh, but I really want this. And he, no, all you need. And he knows what you and I need. This promise spoken by Paul about Jesus shows us what kind of provider he really is. He provides in ways that no person and no other thing ever could. Continuing on, number four. This is huge. The Bible portrays Jesus as a good father because it shows him to be our example and one who gives us discipline and instruction. How many know this is what a good father does? You know that phrase, do what I say, not what I do? Some people try to lead that way. It's funny, but it's bad leadership. And forgive me if I step on your father's toes for a minute. You can step on mine another time. But it's bad fathering to say, do what I'm telling you to do. Forget, don't watch what I do. Now you can say, you can watch what I did that didn't go well and learn from my mistakes. How many know the best experience is always somebody else's? Let me learn from what you did wrong so I don't do that. A good father will say, hey, I made a mistake. Don't actually follow in this. But come follow me as I try to follow him. Jesus did this. He was our example. And he brings discipline and instruction. Discipline is not, I'm going to beat you until you obey. Discipline is, come on, let's go together. Oh, I fell down. I'm sorry you fell. Listen, get up. Get up. You can do it. That's discipline. Get up. You can do it. Let's keep going. Instruction. I know you don't understand. I'm going to explain it to you as we go. But keep on following. This is what Jesus does for us. And it's what good fathers do for their children. Hebrews chapter 6 and also chapter 12 gives a little insight into this. First of all, it says here, Jesus has already gone in there before us. How many know when you've already gone somewhere, then you can lead somebody there? You can't take somebody where you've never been. Certainly can't lead them there. But Jesus, he's the greatest leader the world has ever known. He's already gone. He's become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We do what we have to do, verse 2 here says, by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Again, he's our example. We watch him, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding his shame. I have to pause right there because sometimes we read the Bible too fast and we let things that should cause our minds to scramble a little bit and we just kind of open mouth go, oh yeah, read along. The joy awaiting him, he endured the cross. 
I'm just curious. If I said, let's do an experiment and set up a Roman cross over here on the football field, who would like to be nailed to it? First of all, do we have any takers? Hopefully the answer is no. If we did, would you be joyful? No, you would not. That's the correct answer. No. Pastor Nate, I would not be excited to go hang on a cross. But the Bible tells us, because of the joy awaiting him, you know what that joy was? It wasn't the cross. He wasn't joyful about physical pain. He was joyful about what his obedience to the plan that he and the Father and the Spirit can He was joyful about what that plan was going to purchase. He was joyful about the outcome of his own obedience. So he endured the cross, disregarding his shame. And now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne at the right hand of the Father, Revelation shows us. Going on in verse 5. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. And don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes each one he accepts as a child. I don't really know why this is. I'm sure a psychologist could tell us more precisely. But for some reason, you and I, when we get corrected, that's when we're the most vulnerable to quitting. Have you ever noticed this? When somebody comes and corrects, like you think things are going good, and they're like, hey, this actually isn't going so good. You're not doing a good job at this. Maybe you're a student in this room, and you, you brought home a failing grade on a paper. You've never wanted to quit like you did when you got a failing grade. Maybe you think you're doing a good job, and then you come in for your review, and your boss says, actually, according to me, you're not doing a good job. These are the things that I need to discipline you about and instruct you about and correct you about. And for some reason, in that moment right there, we are all as close to quitting as we will ever be. And yet the Bible tells us that the Lord, because he loves us, he disciplines us. And even that he punishes us as he accepts us as children, as children, We've talked about this before, but the world has this concept that every person is a child of God. You've heard this? We're all children of God. The Bible doesn't actually teach that. The Bible teaches that we are all made in the image of God. The Bible teaches that for those who call upon the name of the Lord, they'll be granted the right to be called sons and daughters of God. So it's in that context that the discipline comes. You said yes to him, and he says yes to you. I'm going to call you up. I'm going to call you out. I'm going to call you to better. And what it says is, if you don't quit, if you don't quit, then you can continue. And you will become better. You will become more of who he has called you to be. And we see Jesus doing this with us in the same way. As an example, for every father and mother and spiritual father and spiritual mother to be to those who they lead. Let's keep going. Next we see in Jesus unconditional love, unconditional love. Romans 8, 38, 39 says this, for I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Somebody should be clapping right now because that is good news. Nothing you can do, nothing anybody else can do, nothing the hordes of hell can do, can separate you from God's love. Now, part of the reason that we have a hard time accepting what I just said about he disciplines, he corrects, he instructs, oh, and it's unconditional love, is because we, in our society, in our culture today, 
we fail miserably at letting God's word define what love is. Love is love. You seen that? No, love is not. Love is whatever the Bible says love is. And in that context, God's love for us is unconditional. The problem today is people define love as affirming whatever you want to do. So we can take a guy. I'll just pick on men for a minute. Take a guy who's an alcoholic, can't ever put down the bottle. He's got an anger and a, and a, and a violence problem, so he slaps his wife around a couple times a week. And he can't do what he says and follow through, so he's gotten fired from six jobs in the last year. And culture's definition of love would still say you should come tell him, man, I love you just the way you are. You're just great the way you are. I want to affirm who you are. I mean, I wouldn't do what you do, but you're great. I love you. How many know that is not love? In fact, if you want to do that, you should say, because I hate you so much. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep destroying your life. Keep beating your wife. Keep failing at your job. Keep drinking every night until you pass out. Because I hate you, do that. Don't say, because I love you, I love you anyway. That's not biblical love. Biblical love says, put the bottle down. Go get some help. Get out of your house away from whoever you've been slapping around. And go get a job and do what you say you're going to do and stick to it. Right? That's what love is. Love calls up. Love calls out. And in that sense, God's love for us is unconditional. That means is he's not going to stop loving us because we fail. But as we just read in Hebrews, because he loves us, he'll correct us, discipline us, instruct us, so that we can be all he's called us to be. That's where the army got it. That wasn't their slogan. That was Jesus. Be all you can be with me. Right? This is who he is. This is what a good father is. Number six, Jesus is sacrifice. And some people might say, well, he was the sacrifice. No, no, no. He was the sacrifice, but he is sacrifice. Sacrifice is embodied in who he is. You want to know what sacrifice is? Take the Webster Dictionary, put it down. Pick up the Bible and start reading about the life of Jesus. You will learn more about what sacrifice is from reading about who Jesus was and how he lived than you could ever get out of a dictionary's definition of what sacrifice is. He's the perfect man, the ultimate sacrifice on a cross for the sins of humanity. And perhaps one of the most famous verses in all of scripture speaks to this, John 3, 16. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. All of these things illustrate how Jesus is an everlasting, good, and perfect father. And it's actually good news for us because every father you've ever known has failed in some way. If you are a father in the room, you're more in touch than anyone else with the failures that come with fatherhood. But Jesus, the perfect, good, everlasting father who will lead us into eternity. As we come back around to the things Isaiah said about Jesus, the fourth name that he gave him was this, the prince of Peace, the Prince of Peace. Let me tell you something. Jesus is the peace bringer. He is the peace bringer. Romans 5.1 says this about him. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. But Jesus, he did not only come to make us at peace with God, though that is perhaps the most significant thing that he did. He also came to bring us peace within ourselves. You know that time in the middle of the night when you wake up and you start to think about what's wrong with your life and you feel a lack of peace, you feel the anxiety come in, you feel the fear come in, the depression come in, the anger come in, it manifests different ways for different people, but we all have an awareness of the things that make our life 
a little disassociated, a little disconnected, a little disintegrated. When you talk to people in the, in, in the medical, mental health professional space, when you talk to, to trained therapists, psychiatrists, what they will tell you is that one of the things they're looking for in a whole person is a person who is fully integrated. In other words, the way that they think, what they believe, and what they do are all consistent. And what we have sometimes is a problem. We believe one thing, but then we think in other ways, and then we act in yet a different way still, and that leads to disintegration. And we are now not a whole person, and there is no peace inside of us. So when you go see your counselor, you go see your therapist, one of the things they're going to be trying to work you through, whether they name it like I just did or not, is to try to fully integrate you so that what you really believe then filters into how you think and flows out in what you do. That brings peace. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. You, me, your mama, your daddy, your friends, your neighbors, your children, none of y'all can do that without Jesus. You cannot bring your entire existence into a place of full integration and full peace without the person of Jesus because he is the Prince of Peace. So if you want that, start with him. But don't just bolt him on. Put him at the foundation and build everything else on top of it. If he's over here somewhere, you can't be integrated. He's the great integrator. It also... The Bible teaches us that he will bring us peace with one another. The reason that we have so many problems in this world is because too many people, people in power, people in leadership, and even just your neighbor down the street that you can't seem to get along with. The reason that there's so much opposition is because we have too many people operating without the Prince of Peace at the bedrock of how they live, how they think, how they make decisions, how they act. This is why we have a problem. I don't know why, I was thinking last week about that old weird song from the 80s. Michael Jackson got everybody together singing, we are the world, we are the children. Anybody remember that? The few Half the room is old enough to remember that, yeah. Two people, nah. I think it was like five, Stacy. It's okay, it wasn't just you and me. There's a few more. There you go, there you go. There's a bunch over here on this side. They're all selling you, hey, we're over here. I was thinking about that song. I was thinking about the idea of world peace. I know why we don't have it. Because too many people in power don't build their life on the words of Jesus and on the person of Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace. And here's what you have to understand. You cannot have peace without Jesus. You cannot. You're like, well, but times, no, no, no. You can have calm. You can have abatement, mitigation, things chill, things are a little better. We've worked it out. You can even have kindness. We can be kind. You can have all of those things, but you cannot have peace without the Prince of Peace. Because peace is far more than calm and kind. Peace is everything. Peace is full integration with who God made you to be and with him. That's when peace comes. And then when we apply that to our relationships and to everyone around us, we find peace. Quickly, I want to show you two more things that Isaiah points out to us about the coming Messiah's rule. Number one, he says this, the government will be on his shoulders. Not just any government, not just a government, but government will be upon his shoulders. This means that the government of Jesus is not limited to a political realm. It extends to the spiritual kingdom and it will extend to the whole world. That kind of government can only sit on his shoulders. If we tried to set it on the shoulders of anyone else, their shoulders would collapse. There is no man, no woman, no group that can hold the weight of the government of the world. 
Don't believe me? Read a history book. Many have tried. All have failed to do what only Jesus will be able to do. When he comes, he will establish himself as a sovereign ruler and he will uphold the kingdom of peace and righteousness and judgment. And he will not just be a king, he will be the king over all kings. He will not be a Lord, he will be the Lord over all other lords. All authority on heaven and on earth have been given to him. Number two, perhaps the best news of all, this is the hope of Christmas and the message of Christmas is that there will be no end to his government of peace. This statement speaks well past the birth of Jesus that we celebrate and remember tonight. Well past the death of Jesus. Well past the resurrection of Jesus and into eternity. And tonight I have to tell you that the message of Christmas is that Christ came to invite you not just into something now but into that, the not yet. The eternal government of peace where he is the king over all. That's the invitation, peace, not only for now, but forever. When we fast forward through the Bible, all the way up to Revelations chapter 11, 15, it says this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven, the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. the old classical song rolling through my mind now. And he shall reign forever and ever. This is a beautiful truth. This is a powerful truth. And this is the truth of Christmas. All throughout scripture, the prophecies speak and point to a reality of Christ establishing his kingdom on earth, an everlasting kingdom. And on that day, when that happens, every other king, every other dictator, every other president, every other ruler will bow their knee. By the way, it won't just be the people in charge. The Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. When Jesus comes back, I just want you to think about this. When you go home tonight and you see your cute nativity with Jesus in a manger, it's cute. Thanks for nice decorations. And that is how he came. So we remember it with reverence. But when he comes again, he's not the baby in a manger. He's a conquering Jewish king coming with fire in his eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth and a tattoo on his thigh that says, I'm the king of kings and lord of lords. That's what the Bible says. So that's what I believe. Because that's what the truth is. This is who he is when he comes. Oh, but what a day it's going to be. Because when he comes, he's going to put to death every sickness every disease, every form of evil, every form of oppression. He's gonna put to death, death itself. I don't even understand how that works. But that's what he says he's gonna do. Even death itself will be cast into the lake of fire and done away with. And then, and then, we will have peace. Everlasting, eternal peace, eternal life with Christ Jesus ruling over it all. This is the good news of Christmas, that Christ has come. And lived a life we could never live. Died the death that we all deserve to die. And now, in his resurrected form, he extends mercy and forgiveness and an invitation to full integration and salvation into his very person, who he is. And it's a good news for you and for me. The question tonight that you have to leave with when you go back to that cute, precious moment's nativity at your house is this Christmas, are you going to let Jesus stay little baby in the manger or will you accept him as the Lord and King that he truly is will you bow your heads with me as we pray and begin to close 
God, we thank you for this night. I thank you for this time, this season, the today and tomorrow where most of the world pauses to remember. Or in those places where they don't, I pray they get a fresh revelation of you. But Lord, as we pause and we remember, Lord, we remember that you are good, that you are God, and that you came. You came. You made yourself ordinary. You clothed yourself in the humility of humanity. The Bible says the angels long to look into the nature of our relationship with you. They announce with glory your plans, and then they wonder, man, God gave up that to go be with them, to save them. Yes, you did. And what a good God you are. What a good God you are. I thank you for your sacrifice. I thank you for making a way where there was no way. Right now, tonight, with every head bowed and every eye closed before we leave, I'd be remiss if I didn't offer you an opportunity to take Jesus out of the manger and set him as king of your heart, Lord of your life, ruler, prince of peace over you. I was pondering this week this idea that every single person Every person, I don't care about your religious background. You may think yourself as an atheist, but you know that you have done things wrong. Even if you have no moral standard like the Bible, there's something inside of you that if you've done wrong, you know it's wrong, and you know that you are a wrongdoer. There is a God who made you, and he decided what's right and wrong, and he wrote some of that onto your heart, and that's why you know it. It's not because of moral relativism. It's because God wrote eternal righteousness into the heart of man. Every person is without excuse. You know. You know what you've done. You know what you've wanted to do. You know what you've thought about. We all do. And I was thinking, man, how could? The greatest mystery to me is how could you know, every person knows their desperate need to be something more than they are, to be forgiven of the things they've thought and done. And there is an actual way for that to happen and his name is Jesus the greatest mystery to me is how anyone could reject that it's the good news, it's the good news of the gospel and so right now with every head bowed every eye closed, if that's you and you say Pastor Nate, I know what I've done and I know I need that salvation of Jesus, I need to follow him as his example, I need his instruction but most of all I need his forgiveness and his saving on the count of three, I'm just going to ask you to slip your hand up. Nobody's looking around. I'm not going to call you up. I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to give you a moment to say yes to Jesus and have a Christmas miracle take place in your own heart tonight. If that's you, I need to say yes to Jesus tonight. One, two, three. Let me see your hand. If that's you here tonight, I need to say yes to Jesus. I need to get my life right with God. Just one more moment. Anyone in the room tonight? Well, I want to pray for you, whether you raise your hand or not, and for all of us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came, that you came as a, as a humble babe in a manger. You came in a way that perplexed the wise. Your word says you take the things that the earth considers, the world considers wise, and you confound them by doing things they would consider foolish. That started with the king of all kings being born in a manger. We don't understand it. But we thank you that you did it that way, that you telegraphed to the whole world that you are the Savior for all, not just for some. That you're the Savior of the lowly, not just for those in high places. And Lord, we thank you that you came to save each and every one of us. Lord, if there's someone here tonight who's far from you, I pray by the power of your Spirit that you would press on their soul. And when the service is over, they would come up and tell someone and give their life to you. Lord, we thank you so much for the message of Christmas, the hope that Christ has come. And we pause to celebrate it, to reflect on it. And I pray, God, that as we move into tomorrow, 
through the rest of this year, this, this last week, God, that you would stir us to be more like you, to love you for who you are, for what you've done, and to continue to go tell it on the mountain, over the hills, and everywhere that Jesus Christ is born. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. You can stay connected with us at Vintage.Church or on Facebook by searching Vintage Church TX. At Vintage, we believe church is more than a place or a weekend activity. It's a spiritual family where Jesus is the center of our lives personally and our relationships collectively. If you're in the Liberty Hill area, we would love to have you join us this week. You can learn more about us, our service time, and plan your visit by visiting Vintage.Church slash Liberty Hill. We hope to see you soon.